everyone. Welcome to Want to Grow On, a show where we dig into questions about agriculture and try to understand how food production impacts us and our world. My name is Hallie Casey, and I studied and currently work in agriculture. And I'm Chris Casey, Hallie's dad. This episode, we're focusing on how COVID-19 has affected food supply chains, and it's a mess. So this episode's going to be a little bit different. I wrote an article for work and I found it really interesting. Um, it was about this same topic and I just had so much more that I wasn't able to fit into the article um, that I wanted to say and talk about and cover. And I just wanted to go a little bit more in depth and I wanted to talk about it with you, dad. Um, so if you want to see the article I wrote on this topic, we're going to link it in the description of this episode. Uh, but it covers a lot of the same material the episode is going to go a little bit more in depth and cover some of the stuff that I wasn't able to include in the actual article itself. But um, that's where the inspiration for this episode kind of came from. Yeah. And looking over some of this stuff, it seems to really underscore the idea that we've touched on before, this disconnect between the agriculture world and the non-agriculture world and people just really having no idea where their food comes from. Yeah, I think that because of the pandemic and because of a lot of the headlines that we saw in the news and images that came out of um, supply chains really breaking down in kind of March through until about June, I think a lot of people are really thinking about supply chains um, in a way that they haven't really before and like what it means to have a food system and a food supply. Um, so I wanted to kind of talk through three different case studies um, and really look at what went wrong, where the weak points are, and then talk through like what um, some of the changes might be that we see in the future and, and how... Um, we can build from this point, kind of seeing the the ways that the failures of the system have been laid bare kind of by the by this pandemic. Okay, so where do we start? So I wanted to start with swine. Uh, swine is by far the most intense of the three case studies that we're going to be talking about. So I wanted to go ahead and jump right in. And just um, to be sure, we're talking yes. about pigs, not unruly people. Yes, pork. Um, the key weak points in both pork as well as poultry um, were meat processing plants. Uh, meat processing in general is very consolidated. Uh, within the pork industry, it's dominated by three huge corporations, which is Tyson, Smithfield, and JBS. Um, these three corporations own almost all of the meat processing in the entire country, Um Within one of their facilities, one of the facilities of these three companies, daily, you can have up to a thousand employees come through to, to work on this meat and to process it and pack it. In the last 30 years, the U.S. agriculture industry and, and U.S. food has undergone massive corporate consolidation across the board. Pork is not an exception to this. This happened during the Reagan administration uh, when the executive branch rewrote the rules of antitrust enforcement that put a much greater focus, actually put the first focus on like consumers and not hurting the consumer. Um, this originally was not part of any antitrust regulation. Antitrust laws are to regulate economic power, like the concentration of economic power. And in the Reagan administration, these regulations were rewritten to say, okay, you can concentrate economic power as long as prices don't go up. So the consumer is not being hurt. And that's how we saw this huge corporate consolidation in the agriculture industry, but also in other industries. 
sounds like one of those things that's supposed to be pragmatic, but has unintended consequences. Or maybe they were intended and it was just all a smokescreen for some lobbying groups. I don't know. Yeah, maybe it was intended for uh, for the wealthy elite to, to take advantage of small businesses and monopolize industries. Maybe. Who can say? Uh, probably, though. Probably. Probably. So pork is extremely consolidated. It's mostly owned by these three companies. Um, and often these days, farmers... Uh, don't actually own their swine that they raise. They're instead of what's called vertically integrated. A lot of farms are in this vertically integrated model. Um, that basically means that they own the farm, but they don't own the actual product that they're raising, whether it's grain or swine. So the, the corporation actually owns the swine and can dictate to the farmer what pigs they raise, how they raise them, and then when and how much they're sold for. This is bonkers to me. So basically, I guess a farm is like a contractor almost. Yeah, basically, the the farm is the contractor. So they, they are actually doing the work to raise the pigs. But because it's so consolidated and these systems are are so rigid, um, you know, it, it really is like down to the day of how long you raise a pig for and then it goes to slaughter and then it goes out for sale in order to maximize profit. Uh, when that system breaks, then it becomes really, really difficult for it to function. It basically makes it impossible for it to continue to function. Um, so in March and April, processing facilities began to close as infections um, of employees spread which left farmers with pigs that were not able to be sold. And grocery stores had much less pork on the shelves because these processing plants were no longer able to process the pigs. All right. So what ended up happening was hundreds of thousands of hogs were, the the industry term is depopulated. That Um, sounds like the worst euphemism (laughs) I have ever heard. Yeah. So basically these farms had no more space, right, because they had piglets that they had to raise up as the kind of next generation. These full-grown hogs were supposed to go off to processing, but the processing plants were closed because workers were getting infected. Um, And so the hogs were basically just slaughtered um, and then buried basically in a, in a mass grave. Um, on April 26th, Tyson Foods, which is one of these three mega giants, actually took out a full page advertisement. I've never heard of anything like this. They took out a full page advertisement in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Arkansas Democratic Gazette and stated explicitly that the American food supply chain is breaking. So are they trying to as it were, save their own bacon? Or are they just sort of aware of... I, I don't understand why they're doing that since they're they're the ones in control of the supply chain. And it sounds like they're saying, hey guys, it's broken. Right. Aren't they the ones that broke it, kind of? They're the ones who built it in a way that it was extremely fragile. Okay. So state governments were forcing these processing plants to shut down because of... COVID-19 as a risk for employees and a, and a risk to, to spread. Um, and then in late April, the president, uh, with very significant input from the meat processing executives, signed an executive order that basically removed liability from meat processors um, when they forced employees to continue working despite the risk of infection. So the food system is breaking, 
But our solution is just to have people come in and work anyway, regardless of the health conditions. Right. The solution is to ensure that that corporations can still turn a profit, uh, regardless of whether or not that puts people's lives at risk. I'm shocked. Shocked, I say. Yeah. The pork supply system um, and the processing system was so consolidated into a few massive plants that when those facilities closed, it shut down the entire supply chain and it basically acted as like a kink in a hose where it was just building up pressure on one end. Um, but it is making it impossible for any of these resources to to flow through um, and actually get to groceries. So you ended up with no pork at the grocery stores and you ended up with people having to put their lives at risk to alleviate this pressure of of hogs being slaughtered and of corporations losing profits. Okay. So that's swine. That's what happened with swine. It's sounds like capitalism is doing its job. What do you mean? Capitalism is doing its job in keeping the corporation going. But part of the key thing with this is that it's not about capitalism solely. It's about the policies um, and the political interference that allow this system to manipulate its workers and take advantage of farmers. Got it. Okay. Okay. Do you want to move on to milk? Oh, boy, do I ever. So one of the biggest images um, related to agriculture and supply chains failing that happened after the pandemic was this image of farmers dumping milk. Did you see any of these? No. Are there actual pictures of this? This isn't actually something that I heard about. Yeah, yeah. There were pictures... Actually, in a lot of in a lot of newspapers that were just showing basically pipes of fresh milk that were just going out onto a field or into a ditch um, from a dairy facility. Because I'm now I'm have all sorts of questions. Like, is this good for the soil? I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> it's then, probably not great for the soil. Probably not great for the soil, but it's benefiting someone. I don't know. I don't understand. You know. This is like the the swine being depopulated, I assume. Yeah. So the the difference with milk um, is that the constricting force was markets, not the processing ability. So it's just people not buying milk. People don't buy milk anymore. People don't buy dairy milk anymore. The largest consumer of fluid milk in the U.S. is school cafeterias. And when schools shut down, they weren't able to buy milk. Um, And also, we as Americans eat a lot more dairy, including like yogurt milkshakes, cheese, whatever, while we're eating out versus when we're eating at home. I do Um, like a good milkshake. Right. But it's not like you're going to make a milkshake at home. So dairy cows usually have to be milked about twice a day. And if they're not milked that often, then they can get sick. So we had this market that was based on leaving the house and leaving the home. So if you can't sell this milk, then you just have to dump it because otherwise your cows are going to get sick. The real question around dairy um, is who is going to be able to continue to dump milk and who will be able to stick around next year? And, you know, what is what is the dairy landscape going to look like after this? Wait, if cows don't get milked, they get sick? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the same thing is true with, with people, with all mammals. If you have... Uh, 
milk building up and you know it's not coming out then you can it can lead to an infection you know it can be painful it's not it's not comfortable i mean now i wonder what they did before milking machines the cows were milked much less frequently (laughs) (laughs) dairy cows these days uh are bred um, and conditioned to produce as much milk as possible. So they're fed a lot more, they drink a lot more water, and you really have to strictly control the hormones of the cow in order to continue it making milk. So if you stop milking a cow, um, then it's going to think that it doesn't need to produce more milk and it can dry up, right? Because cows, as well as all mammals, produce milk for their offspring. So you get a cow pregnant, it starts producing milk, and then you have to just continue milking it. Otherwise, those otherwise those systems in, within the cow are going to dry up. Like it's not going to want to produce milk anymore. Dairy industry is so weird. Yeah, it's intense. Okay. It's funny because since the cow isn't killed, you know, to produce a gallon of milk, whereas it is to produce a hamburger, maybe most people don't think of milk production as some sort of exploitation. And and that's a whole different conversation, I guess. You know, is it even exploitation? I don't know. But the process just sounds, like you said, intense. Yeah, it's extremely intensive. Um, I personally don't know a lot about dairy. I studied horticulture, um, which does not include dairies. But What's clear between poultry, swine, and dairy is that these systems are so rigid that when there is any force put upon them, then they, they break. There is, there is no resilience. There's, there's no redundancy. There's nowhere that we can store milk or send milk if it's not being purchased. And there's no safety net to ensure that farms can continue to operate other than, and we'll talk about this hopefully in a future episode, other than federal interference, basically federal subsidies. And there's no way to get gallons upon gallons of surplus milk to people who could probably use it. Right. And again, we'll, we'll, I think we'll, we'll talk about this in the next episode, but the USDA did try a program that did that, but we just have a system that is so rigid. Our food system is so rigid. It is so difficult to move supply from one place to another that 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 program was really, really hard to implement. And this actually happened in swine. There was a really large amount of swine um, in storage and frozen and prepared to go to restaurants that was basically impossible to actually get to grocery markets. So we saw grocery stores with a swine shortage when we knew that we had this surplus of swine meat, but because it was prepared for restaurants and it was in the restaurant supply chain, not the grocery supply chain, it was not able to get moved over to the retail chain. Yeah, it's just so weird. Yeah, it's very weird. It's kind of contradictory. Like it feels wrong that this is how it's set up, but it's set up this way to maximize corporate efficiency. So next up, is potatoes. Why you got to go hating on little old potatoes? So I wanted to include something that was related to horticulture that was a fruit or a vegetable. Um, and the LA Times had a really great article talking about potatoes. And so that was kind of my jumping off point. And then I went and I did a lot more research based on that article. Um, 
the thing with horticultural crops is that, I mean, there's there's no good time to have a global pandemic. Don't get me wrong. But when the pandemic hit the U.S., the timing was really, really difficult because it was right after um, spring harvest. So harvesting the fall crops um, and right before spring planting. So planting summer crops. And that's a really, really difficult time to have any kind of disruption or constriction in the economic market. Um, so here's here's how potatoes work. So usually potatoes are planted in early spring and then they're harvested in fall, but they are very starchy, so they can be stored for months. So farmers or middlemen, aggregators, store huge amounts of potatoes in post-harvest storage facilities, and they basically fill them up in the fall and sell them throughout the year. Potatoes last a super long time, so this usually isn't an issue, and they basically just sell them throughout the year. So you don't ever really have like a glut of potatoes, and you're able to stabilize the price, which is great. Can we do a episode, whole episode on potatoes one day? Absolutely, we can. Love it. Um, so with potatoes, you did not have a kink in processing. Right? Okay. It wasn't an issue with processing. You didn't need to dump unsold product immediately. All right. But what we saw in potatoes was a hugely deflated market. So prices plummeted and millions of pounds of potatoes weren't sold when they were expected and they continue to go unsold. So while they're currently in storage, they can't stay there forever. And we're not going to see a potato shortage this year like we did with swine. But farmers are losing money every day. They have unsold potatoes in a storage facility. So the real question is, who is going to be able to plant potatoes next year? According to industry journals, 2020 is going to be the second lowest planted acreage of potatoes in the last 20 years. And this is not just unique to potatoes. We're seeing this with many horticultural crops because the pandemic came at this really difficult time where people didn't want to start planting because there was all this economic uncertainty. So we're going to see lower supply and higher prices next year as well. And the potatoes that we have in storage right now can't necessarily last until next year. Right, exactly. They can't last until next year. And similar to what we were talking about with swine, most of these potatoes were destined for McDonald's or like other restaurants, right? They were going to be French fries. They were going to be baked potatoes. They were going to be waffle fries. Um, And so we can't just divert these into grocery markets the same way, not just because people don't eat potatoes at home the same way, but also because these supply chains, these funnels, these hoses can't be moved easily. It's really hard to get food that was supposed to go to a restaurant into a retail market. That boggles my mind. And you know what I do when my mind is boggled? What do you do? I take a break. Here we go. I am so excited to welcome Stephen and Paul, new patrons, to our wonderful patron family. Hey, y'all. Thank you so much for joining. And thank you to our Starfruit patrons, Vikram, Lindsay, Mama Casey, Patrick, and Cheyenne. Cheyenne. You guys are so fantastic, and we couldn't do it without you. Thank you so much for your support. Yeah, Thank y'all. Thank you, Stephen and Paul. 
Listener, the other thing I wanted to tell you about today is a fundraiser that we are currently running kind of um, as one to grow on. We actually announced it over Instagram and then almost immediately met our goal. It was crazy fast. I'm so excited. Um, But it's a really, really good cause. And even though we met our goal, um, feel free to to continue to donate. I want to encourage anyone who can to donate. I know it's a crazy time, but it's a good cause. We are currently raising money for the Gullah Geechee Land and Legacy Trust. So the Gullah Geechee are a people. They are descended from West African slaves um, and live over on the eastern part of the U.S., kind of from the Carolinas down south towards Georgia and Florida. Um, This Land and Legacy Trust is really focused on Black land ownership and preserving traditional knowledge ways from enslaved Africans um, on how to care for land um, and tending land and farming. It's an amazing, amazing project. Um, there, this trust is not only going to, to be going towards black land ownership efforts, but is also, um, working to ensure that the Gullah Geechee can continue to manage their land with sovereignty and to protect their own cultural heritage. Um, so if you want, please go, uh, at least learn more about this amazing cause and the amazing work that these folks are doing to preserve this really, really important, uh, heritage and culture that is a huge part of what makes the South so special, um, and so important to, to hold on to these cultural, uh, ties and this amazing work being done by Black farmers and Black folks in the South. And thank you so much to everyone who already donated. It's very much appreciated. Yes, we were able to match as a podcast up to $100, and we got $240 donated so far. So I'm so, so eternally grateful to everyone who contributed. Um, Please go learn more about the cause and what they're working for and what they're fighting for. And if you can, donate. They are currently uh, about $2,000 short of their final goal for this upcoming week, I believe. So, yeah. Yeah. That's all we wanted to talk to you about. Back to the episode. Back to the episode. Dad, do you have a nature fact for us? Yeah. Uh, It's actually pretty sort of straightforward and boring this week, but I thought it was really interesting. Was that the average cow produces an average of 6.3 gallons of milk per day. That's a lot of milk. It is a lot of milk. And you think about all the people we have, like, it's hard to imagine that that much actually gets consumed, but obviously there's more uses for it than just drinking it. But also, do you ever wonder who the first human was that sort of sat and watched a calf nursing and just kind of went, hey, I want to do that. I could get in there. <laughs> maybe maybe that'll be good for me and my baby. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I have not thought about that, and now I am only thinking about that. Sorry about I mean, you know, harvesting breast milk from cows is one of humanity's quirkier innovations in my opinion it's a weird it's a weird thing we do it is it is although i have enjoyed it with cookies so i mean i don't feel i can comment too much on it but you think about it like huh that's kind of weird so those are the three supply chains that i wanted to talk about um i wanted to spend the last half of the episode to kind of talk about the idea of fragility versus resiliency in like food systems and in supply chains it's important to to remember that with a changing climate and undoubtedly more global public health crises on the horizon, this is not going to be the last thing that puts stress on our food system. Um, this pandemic, COVID-19, has really laid bare the cracks um, of 
this food system. And it's also really like shown what the stakes are. Like it's important to discuss that. It's important to talk about equity and justice in this context because, you know, who is at risk now? Who is greater at risk? It's people who have already been marginalized. These poor black and brown folks are putting their lives on the line to bring us food. Um, and, you know, people's lives have been lost because of these decisions and because of this system. Um, and, you know, folks who have already been marginalized are put at risk by fragile systems, including in, in you know, food insecurity. The World Bank estimated that 265 million people could face acute food insecurity by the end of 2020. The original prediction was 135 million before the crisis. So that's a difference of 130 million folks that are being put at risk specifically because of this food system and because of this crisis. And it's not like there's not going to be another crisis to push on this food system again if we don't make changes. Regardless of the difference, that's a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of people. And it's really clear to see what this pandemic has really laid bare is that it's folks who are marginalized who are put greater at risk when you have a system that is so fragile like this. I feel like that's another recurring theme is we're always talking about marginalized people and how they are the most vulnerable. Yeah, you know why? Because it's true and important and we need to continue to talk about it. So what is... What is, in the, what is the alternative? What does it look like to have a resilient supply chain? Um, within my sphere of agriculture, we talk about this idea a lot of resiliency, um, a resilient food system. This idea of resiliency actually comes from ecological theory, and it's been adapted for use in industries because the lack of resiliency can be really expensive, which we have seen both you know, in the spring when the pandemic hit. And also it has been proven by science that if you have a fragile system, then it is more expensive in the long run. So the ecological definition of resiliency is defined as one, the ability to resist disruption, and two, the ability to recover from disruption. Um, This definition has been kind of tweaked to apply specifically to food systems by the UK Global Food Security Program, where they had kind of a three-pronged approach instead of two. One, the robustness of the system, the ability of the food system to resist disruptions to desired outcomes. Two, recovery of the food system, the ability of the food system to return to desired outcomes following a disruption. And then three, reorientation, the ability of food system actors to accept alternative outcomes following a disruption. So the ability to innovate and change. That sounds like a lot. It is a lot when you think about it abstractly. But when you think about it specifically, like, you know, what does it really specifically mean to be able to resist disruptions of a system? Then you start to get into really specific answers. So one of the answers is shorter supply chains. So the shorter your supply chain the easier it is to resist a disruption. And that's because if you have a person coming to a person and delivering food, if there is something that happens, then there are many fewer people that are at risk. Um, There are many fewer chains that are at risk of breaking. Does that make sense? It does. And I mean, it's probably not, you know, impervious to every possible disaster, but I can see how it would be, like you're saying, more resilient where, 
if you have one link in the chain that breaks, then you don't have anything that can fix it. Whereas if you have a lot of little links, then one of them breaks, you've got all of these other links that can sort of, you know, make up the difference. Right, exactly. It's kind of the idea of having one really, really long chain versus having 40 small chains. You know, what's going to be stronger and also what's going to be more resilient, what's going to be able to resist change better. I almost feel another internet topology analogy coming on. (laughs) So within that point of shorter supply chains is the idea of localizing food systems. So being able to really build systems that are specific to a locality and that rely on the resources of a specific region. Okay. So this is really important in understanding how to shorten supply chains, because as you get more and more local, you're able to shrink those amount of chains, those amount of links in the chain. All right. So I don't know if we're there yet or not. But when I hear things like shorter supply chains and localizing food systems, I also hear, oh, my food could get more expensive. Yeah, no, that's super important to talk about because it's true. The reason that food is so inexpensive now is because the deciding factor for how our system is built is price is how can corporations make the most money? And the answer to that is being able to have the lowest price on the market. So yes, food is going to become more expensive if we choose to make these changes. However, having a a disaster within our food system is more expensive than paying a few more dollars every time you go grocery shopping, right? When we think about the millions of dollars almost to the billions of dollars at this point that have been going to fix the food system in the ways that it broke to bail out farmers and to bail out corporations and to provide emergency food assistance. That's where we have to really think about what the actual price is. Um, And when we talk about having more expensive groceries, we need to talk more um, holistically about what it is to be food insecure and how to provide food assistance to ensure that it is a human right and that everyone has access to it. But we also have to think about if you have the means to, how can you build a more resilient system? How can you get to that point where it doesn't break again and we don't have to put people at risk. Okay. So that's the first one is sort of shorter supply chains. Another one is less consolidation. Um, there are a lot of ways that people are working towards this. One that's currently um, happening, if you want to call your senator about this, is the Prime Act, um, which is basically making it easier to have small meat processing companies. Right now, it's really, really hard to operate a small meat processing facility. Um, And so this act basically makes that easier. So if you want, call your senator, call your representative, because this is at the federal level currently about to be voted on. Okay. Somehow I suspect that, well, I'll call my senators, see what happens. I doubt they'll do anything about it. Give them a ring. Give them a ring. Yeah, give them a ring. It's always worth calling. What is it? Do you know what it does specifically to make it easier? I do. Yeah. So currently how meat processing works is you have to have a USDA inspector on the pro- on the premises at all times for every meat processing facility. That so like expensive. I've been to Yeah, I mean it's it's also like hard. Like it's also just very difficult to get logistically someone who works for the federal government to be in on your 
premises at all times. Like it's just really logistically hard. I've been to a meat processing facility that was smaller than my apartment and they had like three rooms and one of them was the office for the USDA guy. And he basically just sat in his office all day because there's like nothing that happens there. But that's how the current regulations are. Um, And it's just really, really hard to operate. And it's kind of it's like how, how how important is it to have this? You're not really doing inspections every day. Um, do we need you to do inspections every day if you're moving, you know, 40 chickens in a week? You know, can you do inspection like once every other week or something like that instead of officing there on the premises? So that's basically what the act does. Okay. And to be sure, I want these inspections to be done. But like you're saying, oh, yeah. maybe no, they don't have safety. to live there at the right. plant. <laughs> yeah, no, this is not uh, this is not like taking away food safety guidelines. This is not saying that like you don't you can just like put food safety out the window. Um, this is just trying to make it easier to have more meat processing facilities. All righty. Another tick under less consolidation. So we had shorter supply chains. We had less consolidation, um, which included things like more meat processing facilities. That also includes like having more diversified supply lines. So like we talked about in our last uh, COVID-19 episode that like grocery stores have like two or three suppliers for produce. Um, And so having more supply lines, working with more vendors, working with more folks makes that more resilient. Um, Another point, um, point number three, is ecologically based practices. Um, This doesn't really uh, tie in specifically with COVID, but it does tie in when we're thinking more broadly about the crises that are looming that could put pressure on the food system. So like specifically when we talk about climate change, we have to think about ecologically based practices in order to uh, be resilient against climate disaster. That makes sense. And then the last point is innovation. Um, Shorter supply chains, less consolidation, ecologically based practices. And then we have to have the ability to innovate, um, the ability to grow and move forward um, and really adapt. You know, like we really saw during COVID huge innovation from farmers in the terms of sanitation practices for workers, in terms of e-commerce. Um, labor continues to get scarcer and scarcer. So we need innovation in terms of technology, in terms of our ability to do more work with fewer folks, with fewer people, um, greater breeding, better tools. This ability to innovate is going to be really, really crucial in the food system's ability to continue to function during and after crises. So to sum up, I mean, we basically have an economy that encourages companies to sort of get as big and efficient as possible. Mm -hmm. And having a food system that's resilient and can survive these kind of crises is just sort of more or less incompatible with that model, it sounds like. It doesn't have to be incompatible, but what we have to see is policymakers prioritizing resiliency and being able to continue without massive losses of companies, of jobs, of people's lives um, before profit. So it's not like profit has to go out the window. And like, I'm not the biggest fan of capitalism, but I understand that it functions um, for commodity products like agriculture. But we have to 
let profit take the second seat ahead of really policy decision making to create a more resilient system. Because if we don't, then we're going to see again what we saw this spring and what we're going to continue to see as this crisis goes on, which is massive loss of life, massive economic loss, massive job loss, etc. You know what my prediction is? What? Nothing's going to change and we're going to see it again. Oh my gosh. Dad, you're such a pessimist and I don't appreciate it. We are working very hard. I think that we're going to get there. We all just have to show up and do the work and get educated and talk to our elected representatives and elect new representatives. Everyone register to vote. We're going to get there. Call your senators. Call your senators. Please call your senators. Prime Act. Thanks for listening to this episode of One to Grow On. This show is hosted by me, Hallie Casey, and Chris Casey. It is produced by Catherine RJ and Hallie Casey. Our music is Something Elated by Broke for Free. Connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at One to Grow On Pod. You can find all of our episodes as well as more information about the show and the team on our website, onetogrowonpod.com. Join our community and learn more about each episode at patreon.com slash onetogrowonpod. There you can get access to audio extras, fascinating follow-ups, and even custom art created just for you. If you like the show, please share it with your friends. Sharing is the best way to help us reach more ears. Be sure to check out the next episode in two weeks. But until then, keep on growing. Bye, everybody.